granted, but the wonderful pleasure of having my guest Seth Frame today. And we actually did talk a little bit so he can kind of tell you a little bit of what's going on. I'm doing well besides the fact that I have a broken foot. Slows me down, but I don't do any field work right now, so it's it's not that bad. Yeah, uh, backpacking in Colorado. Did you want to talk a little bit about that besides the broken foot? I mean, that sounded beautiful. Oh, yeah. Of course, I had multiple maps with me because I am a map nerd. We were we were in the Uncompagre Wilderness area in, in the San Juan Mountains, in like the Cimarron Range of the San Juan Mountains. We intended to do a two-night overnight backpacking trip. We got to about 12,000 feet and realized that the elevation is probably like too much for it to be like a fun, casual backpacking trip. So we just cut the trip short. And found a camp and hiked out the next day. And that freed us up another day where we went on an easy day hike where I broke my foot. The main goal of that vacation was to have a physically exhausting trip, but mentally relaxing. I was with my best friend. We'd known each other since we were like three. So we're basically the same person by now. He keeps stealing all my punchlines <laughs> for our jokes. Um... And it's just, it's, it was a nice place to be. And I would go back. Besides the backpacking and the broken foot, did you want to give us a little bit about your background and the work that you do? I've been doing GIS for like a decade and a half now. I say it like that because 17 years sounds longer. I started off working in county government doing like parcel boundaries and that kind of stuff. And then again, with my best friend, we went on a road trip out west, ended up in Yellowstone, and I realized like, hey, kind of want to live out west. So I, I found a job working for a company that was looking for someone to do archaeological GIS. So I did that for them for about four years, and there was an economic downturn, and they laid off a lot of, their, a lot of the department. So then I ended up down in Colorado for another six years doing archaeological GIS there. Moved to New York to start a family with my, at the time, wife. And got here, did archaeology here for a little bit, decided that poison ivy and ticks and humidity, not where I wanted to be. So then I started working at a company called Tire Technologies, is where I work at now, and we do school bus routing. So natural progression, parcels, archaeology, school bus routing. Like saying ABC, just how, it's how it goes from one to the other. Uh, and I've been there. I've been there for seven years now. It's been interesting. And each place has been a new learning experience. So speaking of that progression, let's talk a little bit of your anthropological or anthropology background. Because some of the stuff that you did for them was pretty awesome. Do you want to go a little bit more into that? The archaeological GIS is fun, for, to say the least. There's... Kind of two sides to it. There is like the workaday archaeological GIS stuff, which you have to do where you're just making maps and static maps that go into reports. And then there's the other side where we can use the technology to really like do analysis, basically. Some of the projects we did were, uh, we don't, I don't like to call them predictive models, but it's more like a site sensitivity model. And to discuss that more. So we were contacted by the Bureau of Land Management, and they have a uh, natural recreation area that they manage called the Dominguez Escalante National Recreation Area. 
and it's Western Colorado around the Delta Colorado area. And they were looking to do a site sensitivity model, help them with their management of that. So kind of like, oh, hey, where can we have ATV people go and not impact archaeological sites? What we wanted to do is identify areas that had archaeological sites that could that are highly could be highly impacted, medium impacted, and low impacted by people using the area. We're predicting about where types of sites are because there's an assumption that there it's there are sites everywhere because people have been walking along for hundreds of thousands of years, thousands of years in the United States, there in North and South America, you know. That's a debate that's still going on. There's interesting things that are been found with that kind of stuff recently. But for a lot of years, let's just say that a lot of years, people have been around and they leave stuff. That's where archaeology, archaeology is. As a friend of mine explained that we dig through dead people's garbage. Archaeology is the study of human material culture. So it is pe- stuff that people have left behind. And then it's a one, one of the four branches of anthropology, anthropology being the overarching study. You have archaeology, you have culture anthropology, which is what you have with people studying cultures of living people. You have linguistics, which linguistics, and then you have biological or medical anthropology, which gets into the some like the evolutionary ancient people kind of stuff, but also like how we've adapted as well. But archaeology is from stuff that we make. And so the stuff you find out and about are that, is that material culture. We actually got to do a lot of analysis using like uh, linear regression modeling to figure out where these areas are. And that's when GIS really gets interesting and cool is when you're making it work for you as opposed to just making maps. You're taking all these various layers and variables and compressing them down into a single map. I also wanted to go a little bit more into the D stretch. Yeah, that's not even so much... GIS related, although the technology that is used in D-Stretch, which stands for decorrelation stretch, was originally created by JPL the, in NASA to enhance like Mars imagery, aerial imagery. Yes. Cool. So it's a software program that will take the imagery and it's best to use like the raw imagery and it will basically make a false color it basically switches the bands of the colors around, bring out stuff that may not be seen. So it's used in archaeology a lot to look at pictographs or rock art, but specifically stuff that's painted on them because it does have color as opposed to pick, uh, petroglyphs, which are picked into the rock. You can get some good results with the petroglyphs, mostly because you can mess with the gamma on there and it'll like give it a more contrast and that'll make stuff pop out but with the pictograph it really it'll illuminate stuff that is invisible to the naked eye but yeah d-stretch um i've used it for that and i used it from for some personal stuff too like i did a, a rock art road trip in utah looking at barrier canyon style rock art first of all the barrier canyon style stuff for the most part is huge life size or bigger in some cases and it's just it's all inspiring and if you ever get a chance to see some, don't touch it mm. ever. Don't touch rock art ever. It's something really special because it's been there out in the elements for thousands of years. Rock art 
is, you know, a lot of times still relevant to modern day peoples. If you look at you know, Australia, Australia is fascinating. People have been there for basically like when people left Africa, they hot footed it to Australia. They were there about 60,000 years ago. They left Africa 70,000 years ago, which is not a lot, a lot of time to get from that continent to another one. And they have, what's really interesting is that the culture in that 60,000 years, there's still a link from those people to the modern day people. Rock art is still important. They, they still go, they, they, they will still go and touch up rock art because it still holds their cultural stories. Mm-hmm. But also there's rock art with four that has megafauna in it that is no longer around. There's the giant short-faced kangaroos. There's the thylacines, the Tas- Tasmanian tigers. There's the diprotodons, the giant wombats kind of stuff. But they still have maintained this story and the, the, their culture is still attached to, the, to these drawings even tens of thousands of years later. Rock art is something that I find very fascinating, even though it's not necessarily GIS related. It does kind of tell us where we come from or where people come from. Deer don't live in Australia and never have. So the person who drew that came from someplace that did, which is fascinating. They came over that Wallace line, which kind of separates the faunal groups from like Southeast Asia, from the Austral. Although back in the day, that was called, you know, Scientists call that differently because at the, the height of the last ice age, there's a lot more land. So you had the Sunda, which was the Southeast Asia Peninsula, and then Australia and Tasmania and Papua New Guinea were all connected. And they call that Sahul. The geography of the planet has changed in the time span of people, which is fun too. Learning about different cultures is clearly very important to you because not even just the rock art or just evolution of humanity. You also have on your website, you have um, different languages. Why is language so important to you? Well, I was actually just explaining this earlier to my real estate agent. I'm looking to buy a house. We were sitting on the deck of a house that I was having an inspection done on and we were talking. And I've come to this idea or how I'm illustrating it to myself of interact with other people. So every person is an island that they create of their own experiences, right? Mm -hmm. My experiences are different than your experiences. And making any kind of relationship between two people, whether it's personal relationship, romantic relationship, business relationship, it's all about bridging from one island reality to another island reality. And the only way we can really do that is through language. Because you can't see through my eyes and I can't see through yours. I don't know what your island is made out of. It helps if we have common experiences, but you can still make that bridge without it. But we have to use language and languages have traveled with us as a culture, as a, as humanity is spread is they have traveled with us and evolved with us and merged and sometimes stagnated. That's interesting to think of too. Like my ex-wife's family is from. Italy, from Southern Italy in the Puglia region, which is like the inside sole or inside of the heel of the boot of Italy. If you want to think about maps for a second, we'll talk about other stuff. But in like the 1400s, a a large population of Albanians came over because Albania is just across the ocean, uh, the the sea there. 
they came over and settled in that area because of um, turmoil that was going on in Albania. So they speak a version of Albanian in still in that section of Italy called Aberish. And it's very close to old Albanian because Albanian language has changed since they, they left, but that kind of got stuck in time, kind of similar to how Icelandic is similar to old Norse. Mm-hmm. You have this, these little populations that split off and their language just stops evolving. And then you have the main population, which things change and evolve over time. And you see it to some extent in the United States where you have different accents to where you're at. Living in New York, I noticed there is a New York accent. I'm from the Midwest, so we have no accent. You have different accents on different sides of the city. I think there, there's an age variable that, that's there with people have lived there longer and there's more people there in a, in, you know, so there's, but that language that changes so fast. And there's been some books about like looking at languages and, and using them to map human migrations as well. So it's. Is there a question involved in that or just, I'm just talking about language. Isn't it? Oh, no. Oh, no. I was just, I was just interested in um, your, well, your fascination in culture and language. You like a lot of things that are abroad or just the way people live, like going back to anthropology, all of that yeah. stuff seems to be like a really big, important part of you. It's interesting because mm-hmm. like, again, I don't know what it is like to be somebody else than me. Mm-hmm. The closest I can get is to look at other people's cultures and kind of like an example I use that is like watching TV stuff. I am more interested in watching shows that feature LGBT people or African-American people because I'm not those people. And I know what it's like to be a a straight white guy. I don't need to watch it on TV. I want to see something else. I want to experience life through somebody else's lens, basically. I believe for first and foremost to travel i think that you need to get out of your box and to see how other people are living their life if you can get out of the states that'd be even better um i myself would am trying to get my what could be getting my passport this year my favorite areas are very nomadic so like nepal tibet places like that i would would my that's my bucket list there that's just really cool how people kind of doing it different and i there's nothing wrong with that. So it's, it's, that's, that's wonderful. And then on top of that, on top of your love of culture and humanity, you also, I've seen some of your work as a cartographer. What's your favorite part of the globe that you've mapped? You've mapped a few. Yeah. I did a map of the Channel Islands that seemed to get a lot of traction, but that wasn't my favorite. <laughs> so at one point, the Channel Islands, had a population of tiny mammoths. They had swum out, full-size mammoths had swum out to the islands and over the, over the generations have, have sh- shrunk in size. But they were pretty much, they can only swim out. They, they got there because the sea levels were lower. They probably were able to survive there because the sea levels were lower and there was more land mass. And then after the sea levels rose again, they didn't have, the population was no longer viable. But I was just looking at the... I wanted to see the islands and the underlying seabed to see like what those footprints of that, of those ice age islands or landmass would look like. It got shouted out at an Esri conference. Mm-hmm. I did a map of that uh, Sunda and Sahul, the messing with the sea levels 
and dropping it down. I think they say at the height of the last ice age, the sea levels were 400 meters lower. So it dropped down the sea levels and colored that landmass to get an idea of what that ancient landmass might have looked like. 400 meters so, lower, wow. We'd almost say it was an age of ice. The planet was way different back then. Yeah. There's places that are gone now. The Americas that are gone because they mm-hmm. traveled along the coast that's now submerged. Uh, Beringia is now submerged. The uh, uh, land mass between Russia and the United States. There is a, an area that connected the British Isles with mainland Europe called Doggerland, which is now gone. And they're, but they'll pull up artifacts and bones from mammoths and stuff from the seabed and fishing stuff all the time. So the planet that we evolved in, we humans, homo sapiens have been around for basically a hundred thousand years before we really invented farming, which is mind boggling. Like that's just the amount of the, the written record that we had is dwarfed by the, the amount of time that we don't have written records of as, as, as a human species. So what's the debate on it? Now you said it's a hot topic. When people got to the, to the United States, or not the United States, but, but to the Americas, because for a lot of years, it's, it's been 10,000 years, has been Clovis first, where you had the Clovis culture was the first culture that was in the United, was in the, the Americas, big game hunters, 10,000 years coming through the ice-free gap in the Canada. But in the last five, 10 years, that day has been, been kind of pushed back. And we, we have stuff that's reliably 13, 15,000 years. And then recently in the past few years, they've uncovered some footprints, some trackways in like the White Sands area in New Mexico. And those might be 20,000, 23,000 years old. Those are really interesting to have a trackway where it's an adult a woman with probably like a three-year-old child and they can tell the adults carrying the child they stop the adult puts the child down kind of rearranges picks the child up on the other side and continues walking and then you have the tracks of a giant ground sloth which intersect those tracks of the human the humans and reacts to them so you can kind of understand it's contemporaneous where the ground sloth will stops rears up on its hind legs looks around and then goes off in a different direction from where it it was headed to begin with so like it saw the human tracks smelled the human and then left so they're dating those of 20 23,000 years which is a big jump from 10 basically just doubled that but there's you know I've never heard of a ground sloth. How big was that? There, there were a variety of different types of ground sloths. There were some, they were all very big. They're much bigger than the, the tree sloths that are still around. They were related, but I don't remember what kind the one was that they had the tracks, but the biggest is, is probably by weight of not much as an elephant. They were very large. I do know there was one that lived off the coast of Chile in South America that was aquatic, apparently, which is fascinating. Fed on the seafloor and seagrass. It's like, oh, that's bizarre, but really interesting. 